Hi, this is Chase Garbarino. I'm the co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show, brought to you by HQO. Very excited to have a, a good pal of mine, Frank Sapovitz. Frank, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So um, you have a long and illustrious career uh, in sports, which for our audience, um, commercial real estate and technology folks, you know, probably on the surface, they're wondering why um, uh, someone coming from sports has decided to team up and do some work with a, uh, with a company like HQO and 10 experience space. So let's start by um, just hearing a little bit about your background and then we can get into ultimately how we, how we kind of came together on this. Well, Chase, thanks for having me on your, your show and your company are really focused on tenant experience on customer experience. And, and that really starts from the ground up. Uh, and I learned the value of, the customer experience literally from the ground up. I, w- I was a 15-year-old usher at Radio City Music Hall in New York City and uh, and stayed with that organization for 16 years. When I left uh, thir- uh, 16 years later, th- at the age of 31, I was the director of special events. So I learned everything there was to to learn or much of what there was to learn about the customer experience by being one of the people who was way down at the bottom, the least appreciated, the least paid, the least trained. Uh, and we delivered the customer experience. We were part of that show, if you will, that Radio City uh, put together. And some of the special events that we did, because then there's a question of how did you go from Radio City to sports? A lot of the events that we did were Super Bowl halftimes and Goodwill Games welcoming ceremonies and, and things like that. I, I moved on from Radio City and went to the NHL, where I was the group vice president of events and entertainment for 13 seasons. And I was responsible for managing the All-Star Weekend, the Stanley Cup, the draft, events like that. And then went on for another decade running uh, events for the National Football League, including the Super Bowl, the NFL draft and others. Uh, you know, how do, how do you go from from entertainment to sports to commercial real estate. Well, it's all about experience at the end of the day. You're delivering an experience, and whether it's an entertainment experience or a sports experience or a working experience, an environment that you're creating. It's the t- totality of that experience that really provides the, the payoff, if you will, for the customer, for the guest, and in this case, for the tenant. Yeah. So customer experience is something, you know, there have been technology companies now that have built this, you know, a category of customer experience software. But when you started working at Radio City Music Hall, there probably wasn't a lot of knowledge base or, you know, things to learn from. It wasn't a, you know, a, a studied profession. So how, how did you learn and architect, you know, what is experience management uh, at a time when, no, there was events, but when you're talking about experience, it's a much more holistic thing. And we've had this discussion. So how did you learn how to do all this? Well, you really start with your customer and you work your way back. So before there was technology that could deliver this as a platform, as another, as another distribution channel, if you will, mm-hmm. of the experience, it was really done in a very interpersonal way. It was from person to person. 
Um, it would, and everybody who delivers that experience works for the brand that is uh, associated with it. Even if you're a contractor or you're sitting at a security desk, you're, you're delivering an experience on behalf of a brand. And in, in the beginning at Radio City and even at the NHL, because you know, even back in the early 90s, believe it or not, there were actually arenas that still didn't have jumbotrons. You know, back then, it was amazing yeah. to think about that. But mm -hmm. in 1991-92, when I started at the NHL, the, the Montreal Forum, for one, I think the Boston Garden, you know, they didn't have jumbotrons. They were, I would love they to were, know what the ROI <laughs> was for that first jumbotron. Yeah, well, you know, I remember they were actually projection screens. I, I remember going to, um, uh, I think it was the Capitol Center in, in Maryland. And and seeing in the upper corners these projection screens where there were projectors way across the arena that were that were providing the images, and it was the most amazing thing that you could actually see close up. It really it really plussed up the the value of the experience of buying a ticket, yeah. and and that is really where where sports kind of made the right hand turn that they needed to to compete with an ever increasingly terrific at-home experience and that's that's really where the where the similarity between commercial real estate and sports is today you're you're not competing only against other buildings you're competing against the at-home experience now sports has been doing that for decades yeah if you think about it the the very act of going to a stadium or arena is incredibly uh inconvenient it's expensive. You have to buy a ticket. You have to pay for parking. You have to pay for gas and tolls. Uh, you may spend 90 minutes in, a, in your car, you know, gritting your teeth, trying to get to the stadium. You, you may spend 90 minutes trying to get out of the stadium. Just getting out of the parking lot is a pain in the neck. Um, your beer is 10 times more expensive uh, at the stadium than it is mm. at home if you were just to open up the refrigerator. And, and think about where television has gone and even online streaming in terms of the quality of the at-home experience for, for sports. Why would anybody go to the stadium? They go because it's the best place to enjoy the game, right? There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of tribalism. You know, you want to be around other fans who think the way you do, who feel the way you do. You know, think about where commercial real estate is today. All of a sudden, the at-home experience has become not a small competitor. It's a major competitor now. Everybody's on Zoom calls all day long. You know, the, your, your commute is measured in feet and steps instead of in, in miles and, and minutes or, or hours. It's certainly cheaper to walk upstairs to your office. It's certainly, uh, you know, than it is to, to, uh, come into downtown or to, or to the, uh, commercial park to, uh, to work with your colleagues. But at the end of the day, the, the at work experience is so much more productive, so much more innovative, so much more immersive when you come into the office. And, and it's really our job collectively to, to make that message heard. Because at the end of the day, think about all the things that, that you have to go through when you're remote that just affect your experience uh, at work. You don't have the ability to walk into somebody's office and collaborate and innovate 
uh, and do it kind of on a, on a casual basis. Think about all the interactions you have during the course of a day in an office building where you just walk into somebody's office and say, hey, got a minute? You know, I've got this idea. What do you think? Now you have to make an appointment a week in advance <laughs> to have every conversation. So is that more productive? Is that more innovative? Does that create a better environment? I don't think it does. I think it's more convenient, you know, on the individual level, but it's certainly not as superior as being able to collaborate as a team in the office. It's as tribal as going to the stadium. Yeah. So when you were at the NFL and you guys were looking at stadium experience versus, you know, in home, this is a big focus for you. What, what, force the NFL to kind of acknowledge, okay, we need to address this. And then what, how did you guys go about addressing the, you know, improving the, the stadium experience? Yeah, I think it's also, it, this is also very similar to where commercial real estate is mm. at, at the current time. Think about how commercial real estate generates its revenue. It's on square footage mm-hmm. and, and over a period of time, right? There's a, there's a lease term. So right now, you're collecting rent on the gross square footage that, that, uh, that you're renting to a particular tenant company. Well, we had a similar situation at the National Football League in, in 2005 when I got there. Uh, you may recall that there was a blackout rule. And the blackout rule was if the stadium wasn't full, if it, if it wasn't sold out, the game was not on local television. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was meant to to make sure that all the tickets were sold locally so that people didn't stay home and watch in the local market instead. So yeah, my poor family in Rochester, New York could never watch the Bills games after that. Right, because they weren't sold out. Yeah, right? right. You could watch it in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. couldn't watch it in Buffalo. Right. And that rule has gone away. But it, at the time, every Monday we would have a meeting. I think it was Monday morning and we'd go through the numbers of how many people came to stadiums and it was really about blackouts. Well, how many blackouts did we have? We had none, we had one. Uh, but, but the, the head of scheduling at the time, how uh, Howard Katz, I think he's still the, the head of scheduling uh, remarked to me one day said, you know, it's funny, all the tickets are sold, but there's lots of empty seats, which means that season ticket holders had bought all the tickets and and have just had just decided for one game or another not to go to the stadium. And at the time, it was harder to sell tickets on the secondary market. It wasn't legal yet uh, to to have StubHub's and eBay's and the secondary ticket market. So people were were just burning their tickets. They weren't they weren't using them. And and I asked the question: Well, why aren't they using them? Why isn't going to the stadium for any game? It doesn't matter who the opponent is. Why aren't people coming? And, and so we undertook a market research study to determine what people didn't like about the stadium experience. And what was really interesting, and, and I think we knew it intuitively, but we really needed the data, was it was about the driveway to driveway experience. It was about the journey from the time you left your house until the time you got back. So it was about the traffic. It was about the parking. It was about the inconvenience. It was about uh, clearly, it was about whether your team was bound to win or lose. People really did care about that. But one of the other things was was about totally about, about logistics at the end of the day. 
Mm-hmm. So we said, well, what are the what are the key things that key things that you really don't like? And and the number three thing after parking and traffic was the halftime. And we scratched our heads and we said, well, what is it about halftime people don't like? Are we not entertaining them enough? You know, what is it? So we undertook a secondary study to find out what it was about halftime people felt was annoying. It wasn't about the Frisbee dogs and it wasn't about the marching bands. You know what it was about? The lines at the bathroom Hmm. during halftime. That's what the number three most uh, hated part about going to a stadium were the lines at the bathroom during halftime. Hmm. And the number four were the lines at the concessions to buy beer. And of course, those two things are related. Right. Right. So, so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you deal with that operational issue? Think about what those, all four of those things are. It's about the experience. Mm. It's not about how much you entertained people. It's about the touch points and how, how people felt about the stadium environment. Service was another. So, you know, the more we got into it, the more we realized that it was really an experiential gap that we had to close. We had to figure out how to better organize, uh, you know, cues and how to deal with throughput at concessions and things like that. We couldn't change the throughput at the bathroom, but we could right. make the experience a little bit different. That's why, why televisions started to be installed in concourses. So mm. people weren't missing analysis. They weren't missing the game. They weren't missing play-by-play. So, you know, all of those things were the same. So remember, again, it's it's sort of like the 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 square footage that you lease. The tickets were sold. It was fine. Yep. Not no problem there. But people weren't showing up. And because they weren't showing up, there were other revenues and other opportunities to impact the experience that weren't happening. You couldn't get the concessions revenue, you couldn't get the parking revenue, couldn't get the merchandise revenue. Yeah. Interesting that the more you solve the beer problem line, the bigger the the problem for the bathroom goes. So that's absolutely a, a doubly challenging problem. Um, so what what are you've talked a lot about the the similarities between the two in terms of what you're seeing from the stadium experience and now commercial real estate? And I think at a very high level, there's um, there's significantly more overlap when you start to break it down as experience, you know, within a physical environment than people think about, but there are, there are some differences if, you know, I'm a landlord and, um, you know, if I own a stadium, I control end to end most of that experience. If I'm a landlord. Um, how, how do you think about if you're a landlord going about at least breaking down the experience? What, what would the process be if you were to go in uh, with a blank slate and think about the experience of an office building, which you have some experience doing yourself? You know, one of the things that, that we did when we developed the, the uh, rooftop at Pier 17 at the mm-hmm. South Street Seaport in New York yep. was we thought about the first impressions that people get when they walk in. Uh, this was a new development. So uh, this is a, a, an area of New York City that's very, very old, and a brand new building was being built uh, on Pier 17, uh, which is three blocks south of the Brooklyn Bridge. And there was a recognition by the, by the company that developed it, which was Howard Hughes Corporation, that the rooftop was going to be just this really incredible place to visit 
because of the views of the East River, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Brooklyn skyline, and of course, looking back into Manhattan at the, at the Manhattan skyline. Um, getting people to the roof was the biggest issue that we had. We wanted to create an event venue up there, not only a place that you could go and enjoy some passive recreation, which you can do, uh, but also we were going to, we were planning to do concerts and major events and, and, you know, television shows and things like that up there on this open air amphitheater on the roof. Uh, and, and recognizing that you had to pass people through five stories of the building with other businesses operating mm. and recognizing that the, the people going to the roof would impact their operations. We had to find a way of separating that group that's going to the roof from the uh, from the rest of the people going through the concourses there, recognizing there was only one set of escalators mm. going up there. Yeah. So what were we thinking about? We were thinking about how you how you secure people on the way in. You know, commercial real estate does that too. What's that access control point? Yep. And and what does that feel like? But but how welcome do you feel when you come up there? How easy, how friction-free do we make the arrival? How, how do we get you through the building in a way that is kind of a voyage of discovery? Every time you make a turn, you see something new, you see something different. You see the other businesses in the building that we want you to, to also patronize because in that building, there's an enormous number of food and beverage outlets, you know, great restaurants and bars and clubs and things like that. But there's also ESPN. Uh, yeah. on the third floor that broadcasts daily from that location. And we wanted to make sure that people went to the restaurants, but they weren't trying to find a way to get into the studio. Yeah. <laughs> so those listening, that's where they do the get up show, right? That's right. They do get up there. I think they do do first take. They were doing NBA countdown. They do quite a lot of shows from, uh, from what they call ESPN Seaport studios. And it's on yep. the third floor of the very same building. Yeah. So it was the arrival experience. Um, it was the ability to familiarize people with with how the how that building operated. So when you come for the first time, uh, you know it's a little bit daunting because you see these crowds of people and you don't know where you're supposed to go. So wayfinding was really important, orienting people to what was around, how to how to make your way around the the entire district because there's businesses. Uh, you know, for blocks around that, that were also part of this development uh, or redevelopment of the South Street Seaport. So, so arrival and service orientation. Service orientation was enormously important to us. Um, we, it, it's not Disney World, right? You're, you're yeah. not going to get, you know, the, the big smiles from every New Yorker that walks <laughs> in the door. It's just not going to happen. But you New can Yorker be very authentic. <laughs> but you can be very authentic. And you yeah. can and you can be you can focus on what their experience is like. Uh, and, and you think about it on an individualized basis. Um, what is what is a New Yorker uh, going to encounter when they come in? What is a tourist going to encounter and how do they consume it? And and one of the really important things to us was how will somebody who's mobility impaired going to get up to the roof and how what is their experience going to be like? Mm -hmm. And and you know we get high marks at the seaport for taking care of that audience, which is uh, you know enormously important to us and and to the community at large how do you get people who have difficulty getting in and out 
uh, and and how do you accommodate them where they feel like you care about what what their experience is all about. So th- those are really important uh, opportunities, I think, for commercial real estate too. What's the entrance experience like? Do you feel welcome when you walk in the door? I, I can tell you that when I walk in the door of almost any office building, whether I work there or whether I'm a guest there, the service experience is not even close <laughs> to wow. the Disney World experience. I just feel like I'm bothering people when I walk in the door. That can't be the the uh, uh, the the experience you get when you walk into an office building. It has to be yeah. has to be secure, but it also has to be welcoming. Well, and starting there with the access point, you guys you guys went on through a lot of challenges in the sporting and events world after 9-11, right? You know, oh, that, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a higher bar of, you know, what the normal access requirements are for an office building when you know, the, the security needs were not what you guys had to figure out um, after 9-11. So talk a little bit about, you know, you've run me through the process of how do you balance security and safety with, you know, not a terrible experience, right? Well, and and that goes back to how you train and how you uh, how you get your staff, your on the ground staff in the front line, to understand how important the customer is, how important the tenant is, and and as important as the tenant is, is the tenant's guests. Mm. If tenants uh, guests come in for meetings, you, you want them to be welcome. You want them to feel welcome. You have to do all the security things that you have to do. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, I think people generally get that now. I think it changed into commercial real estate too. Maybe stadiums because of the density of of the people, uh, you know, coming into the stadium, and also the the visibility on television. You know, that's that's a target. But we're all targets, right? There's soft sure. targets now too. So I I I'm pretty sure that most commercial real estate concerns thought about security differently after nine eleven too. Uh, sports had to take it to the next level. Now we're dealing with health and safety in exactly the same way. The world has changed in terms of how we place health and safety as a priority. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going away. I think it may change in terms of how we process that. So for example, right now, there are many office buildings that, that have added security features, surveillance, or even magnetometers in some cases, uh, uh, you know, bag checks in some cases, certainly access control um, in, a, in a way that is very, very different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, right now, people care about health and safety. They're going to be inconvenienced for a while, whether it's temperature checks or, or some other form of, of, uh, of a, a checkpoint. Uh, but I think that's going to resolve itself in a way that is you know, very similar to the way security was was resolved, which was, well, you have magnetometers that that determine whether or not you've got metal in your pocket, which could be a weapon. But now you're going to have a health and safety concern. And maybe, just maybe, somebody is going to come up with the notion that that a temperature scan doesn't have to be done by a person with a, a thermometer aimed at your forehead, it can be incorporated into that checkpoint so that the set, the temperature sensor is part of the turnstile. It's part of the magnetometer. It's part of whatever access control point you have. 
and it's automated. And we may change how we feel about people with fevers walking into our offices, not just COVID-19, right? Right now, if you're sick and you have a temperature of 103, you can walk right in the door. Yep. And you could theoretically infect other people in the building and other people in the elevator, other people in the office space that you're going to be occupying. In this particular case, maybe we're going to change our philosophy on that and say, hey, uh, hi, Chase, uh, our sensors indicate you've got 102 fever. Are you feeling okay? Mm. Maybe you should go see a doctor. (laughs) And perhaps there's going to be a new standard that says, well, if you've got over 100 degree temperature, we're going to ask you not to come into the building. Right. So it'll be interesting to see because I remember between TSA and stadiums, the burden became very large. And then slowly over time, they got better and better and better. And I think a lot of that you touched on was training. And on commercial real estate, there has there hasn't really been the emphasis, emphasis on kind of the end-to-end customer experience, right? A lot of it you know, for a very long time, it was location, 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 right? And it was an asset that the business model has been very good for a very long time. And I think this mindset of end-to-end customer experiences is new for a lot of the operators in the space where particularly as investors, oftentimes they're bringing in third-party service groups to manage different elements of the experience. Um, how would you recommend to you know owners of assets to start to begin kind of the change management necessary to get closer to the customer experience because it's something that I think you know as, as leases become shorter and shorter, you know that introduces more churn into the business model and when you have churn, you know, mo- most industries have churn not, not a lot of industries have ten year plus commitments right you have to continually work for your customer so um you know how how would you encourage them to kind of start the process of becoming customer oriented the first thing i'd say is recognize that whether it's a third-party contractor or a staff member Mm -hmm. to the tenant there's no difference right they're they're your staff Uh, so you have to be as concerned about the training of the third-party contractor as you do for your own people. And, and you have to provide them with an understanding of what their role, what their responsibilities are, certainly, but also how important how they interact with the customer is to the business. It's going to either add to the value of the brand or it's going to detract from the value of the brand. And, and that's the first thing in terms of being able to deliver that kind of training, given the amount of churn in the, in the, in the business is the best way to deliver that training today is through technology, Mm. using a technological platform to be able to deliver that in a compelling way, in an engaging way, and in a way that resonates and creates and, and inspires the, these people to be able to deliver the experience and understand how important the delivery of the experience is. Uh, so that that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing that I would say is to is to recognize that that you're welcoming people back to their work home from the home that they work in. Right now they're working at home, but you want them to think of the workplace as their work home, where they get work done, where they get business done, where they innovate 
and interact and collaborate, which is, you know, in my view, the highest and best form of engagement with with an, an employee or a tenant. Uh, so I think that that you know you have to think about what that arrival experience is like, and you have to also think about what kinds of conveniences you can add, what kinds of value you can add to the business day, which again can frequently be done with with technological uh, advances and technology platforms. um, And HQO's platform, I think, is stunning in this particular case. I know that's we're we're not here to run a commercial for HQO, but I but I will tell you a subtle plug. (laughs) No, but I but I'll tell you that that the ability to be able to use that app to uh, improve your productivity during the course of the day. Uh, you know, ordering food or transportation, or even starting to understand and adding functionality for what happens before you even walk in the door mm. of the building is going to become increasingly more important. Uh, an app that that basically bridges the physical and digital divide that currently exists. Right now, you're you're you want to be able to say that a tenant feels like they're part of your building community, whether they're working from home or they're not. I, I, I heard today on CBS radio uh, on the news that, that there's an expectation that about 50% of the people who go to work uh, or went to work on any given day a year ago are going to be going to the office uh, a, a year from now on any given day. Mm-hmm. So they may work at the office three days a week and at home two days a week. But the fact is they're your tenant seven days a week. Yep. <laughs> and, and you want to make sure that you're connected to them wherever they're working and that you're adding value to their business day wherever they're working, even if they're not in your building. But when they are in your building, the that's going to be the best place to get things done. Right. And that's what resonated with me when we first started talking was the concept of having a, a constant connection with the fan from sports and this, you know, it seems people laugh a little bit about creating fans of their building, right? Like you don't necessarily think of building that way, but the experience people are fans of experiences and they're fans of the people that they engage with. So the concept of um, treating them like a fan, like a sports team would and having that connection, you know, where, you know, as a as a Boston sports fan, you know all of my examples come from what the Boston folks do. But you know, Red Sox created Red Sox Nation when John Henry bought the team, and they did a great job of reaching fans that didn't have access to Fenway Park all over the world. Right, so they started to bridge the gap between the team and ultimately where they could access. You know what what they were doing was trying to maintain loyalty, right? Because it's oh. good. Good for yeah, business. you're 100 percent right. And think about it. it when you're when you're a fan and you go to a game three times a year, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you're not a fan for the other 160 some odd games that are being played that year on on a normal year. Yeah. Um, you know, you're a fan all the time, and whether you're at the stadium or you're not. And and sports teams really have understood that for decades. You know, you're still you're still engaging with that fan and increasingly it's being done through second screen experiences and handset you know hand uh mobile sets and things of that nature where you know you, you used to depend only on the ballpark then you depended on the ballpark and radio and television now you're depending on 
the ballpark radio television and streaming services and websites and mobile apps and everything else and and commercial real estate to me is not that different in terms of how we're now thinking about how people are going to be going to work in the long term they you want them to come to work 5 days a week monday to friday but they might come to work monday tuesday and friday but Wednesday and Thursday, they're still your tenants. Um, and the more value that you provide that that crosses that physical divide using digital platforms is that to me, that's the killer app. That's what keeps it all together. Yeah. And what sports has done and what I think is a, a, another interesting trend was sports also woke up to the fact that you have to engage the the fan, you know, you need an omni-channel uh, strategy because it's the reality of the world. And uh, I'm friendly with a guy named Jim Rushton, who's now the chief revenue officer at the Los Angeles Chargers, did some work for the Miami Dolphins and um, a lot of different uh, radio groups and things. So he's been in and around digital media and sports for a while. But what he he kind of pushed and pioneered within sports in particular was we can't be renting our fans from platforms like Facebook, right? He, he recognized pretty early on that that was a, a significant cost center to their business. If he's saying, you know, if I have to pay Mark Zuckerberg every time I want to reach the San Diego Chargers group on Facebook, that's an issue. What we need to, you know, ultimately we need to get to is owning the first party data, you know, a direct relationship with our fans through software. And as commercial real estate, is evolving you know similarly it looks a lot like sports did right the television networks had the direct relationship with the audience on that channel social media started to own the the fan base through digital channels and um sports had developed you know digital platforms jim created a, a uh, at the dolphins i think it was called like finbucks or fanatics or something where he had kind of a a loyalty program directly with the fans. So if you engaged with them digitally, you got access to the players at, at the stadium and they, they created benefits at the physical environment of the stadium. That was really, really interesting. And then they had the first party data on their own fan base and for commercial real estate, they've really never had any connection with the end user of the building, right? You know, the person who pays the lease signs, the lease pays the rent signs, the lease. But I think that's where, you know, they're, they're starting to, I think, become acutely aware of the fact now that no one's at the buildings, oh, we really have no channel to these people that are, you know, tremendously important to, to the, the vibrancy and ultimately the business model of the building, right? Yeah, Jim is, I know Jim as well, and he's both very smart and a really good guy. Yeah, I, he is. I, li I like him a great deal. I don't um, think we're ever getting him back. He used to be a Boston guy. Now he's in LA. I don't think we're ever getting him back. I yeah, think and I worked with him in Miami, and and he's he's just you know incredibly smart, and he's a hundred percent right. Mm -hmm. the 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 direct relationship that you can have with your tenant is something that that should be established right away. And the fact of the matter is that that the best way to get to know them is through these techno uh, technology platforms. You know the the ability to be able to engage with someone, um, and and then also provide them with the value of for of engaging in the first place. So once you've engaged with them, once you've established that relationship, 
you have to continue to communicate. You have to continue to provide value, insight, entertainment, whatever it is that keeps them engaged with your platform and your brand. That's that's where the key is. Yeah. So, okay. I know we've got a couple other things to cover here before we get going, but let's talk a little bit about um, your book, um, What to Do When Things Go Wrong. So how, ma- how many books have you written now? <laughs> there were four. Uh, there were four. Two of uh, uh, three of them actually are textbooks. Yeah. Um, they're being used on the university level on sports and event management. I like um, to tell people when it comes to experience management. You know, when you describe a expert, you say they wrote the book on you. Literally wrote the book. I did. I, I yes. Yeah. The 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 sports event management and marketing playbook has been in publication for about fifteen years. Yeah. In a couple of couple of different editions, and uh, and is still being used. In fact, I teach and I use it um, on the university level. So, what to do when things go wrong is a is a business book. It's about crisis management. Uh, and you know, I'm a planner by trade. That's what event people do. That's what experience people do. Uh, I planned Super Bowls um, at one point in my career for a decade. And and it's not dissimilar to any project that you pick up. It's just much more complicated. It's got a lot more details uh, that have to be dealt with. And it's certainly a lot more visible than most projects that we work on on any given day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if something goes wrong, it's not a, it's not a secret for very long. Um, and in fact, you know, many of you listeners will Remember the blackout at at Superdome during Super Bowl uh, forty seven, uh, and I was th- the person up in the control room trying to manage the response to that. Luckily, we got the game going again. But I, you know, what I found was that planning is not the first thing you do. You know, you start with the end and what you want to achieve, and then you imagine all the things that are going to po- potentially impact you getting there, potentially impact the success. And before you even start planning, that imagining phase is so incredibly important. You know, could we have uh, prepared for a pandemic? Uh, we probably couldn't have imagined one, but we could have imagined a, a, a situation where people couldn't get to our place of work. Mm-hmm. That is a very general statement. You can imagine that any number of things could have done that. It could have been civil unrest. It could have been damage to the neighborhood. It could have been damage to the building. It could have been any number of things that kept tenants from getting to your building. How would you communicate with them? And and that proves the, the notion that, or, or suggests the notion that although problems don't follow patterns, solutions usually do. They're, you're not usually dealing with the problem. You're dealing with the symptoms of the problem. And that's mm-hmm. what imagining those, those uh, issues uh, start to deal with. Could we have imagined an economic downturn that hits the entire world at the same time? Yes, we could have been prepared for that. Yeah. And we, we got that from yeah. the pandemic. So could we have imagined the pandemic? Probably not. But we could have imagined an interruption in our business, an economic downturn, the inability for people to get to our buildings. That's where the contingency plans have to be created, starting with how do you get from point A to point B, but what's going to keep you from getting there? And that's, you know, a majority of what we discuss in the book is how you how you start to understand 
how to deal with plans not for every situation but for any situation which is which is totally different yeah and now that it has happened is it too late for landlords to almost retroactively you know your framework is imagine prepare execute respond evaluate i mean can they put this into place now even though they it wasn't proactive it's somewhat reactive well, a hundred percent. And I would say that right now, what we're doing is hopefully not reacting, but responding, which mm-hmm. is a little bit more thoughtful. You, yep. you want to respond quickly, but you don't want to, you don't want a knee jerk uh, reaction to what's going on. You have to be very thoughtful about anything that you put into place to deal with the problems that you have so that you don't create new problems. You don't create, you know, bigger problems, the unexpected you know, uh, or unintended consequences, if you will. Um, and, and we should be evaluating how we're doing all the time. But the fact of the matter is, there's going to be a next time. This is not the last time we're going to be faced with a challenge. Right. There, it could be next year, it could be next week, it could be three years from now. But we still have to imagine how we want to get people back in the building, what that experience is going to be like, and what is, what is going to keep us from getting there delivering a great experience when they do come back. So is it too late? No, it's exactly the right time. Yeah. And do you see this being applied to not even, you know, we're talking about the lights going out at the Super Bowl, global pandemic. These are all relatively large sizable examples that we're talking through, but let's take a more every day uh, or every year example of I run an asset and my largest tenant is, you know, the lease break is coming up. Um, apply this framework to what what to do when you know you might not be releasing right this can this can be applied to i think more everyday business strategy as i'm as i'm understanding it well by yes absolutely um the 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 blackout was a one thing at a big thing that had a big impact doesn't have to always be that there's always going to be something some detail that's going to go sideways on you and you have to you have to have the right structure, the right chain of command, the right organization, the right communications platforms to be able to respond to all of those things. So, for example, let's say that there's something that that you know is going to keep your building from opening at eight o'clock in the morning for whatever reason, whatever that is. How do you tell people about that before they get there? Mm. That that is that kind of uh you know th- that kind of specificity for a, a very localized problem i don't know what your problem is maybe it's that all the elevators don't work i don't i i'm picking something out of the air yeah. that's very <laughs> unlikely to happen but let's say you have one elevator and it's not working and you want to you want to let people know hey go get a cu- you know get a cup of coffee working on it 10 a.m. we're going to be fine um you know, now you have a platform to be able to do that. How does that add value to your tenant employer relationship? Well, the, now they don't have to be the one that that is part of the chain of communication, right? You can get to tenants directly because you've got this very valuable platform. It takes some of, some of the burden off of the employer because right now what you would have to do is you'd have to go to the employer. The employer would have to get to their tenants to your tenants, their employees. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you're, you're now shrinking the, the response time and taking links out of the chain that are 
you know, superfluous. And that adds value to the relationship. So I do, I have a note in here in our kind of show documentation from Tom. Can this be applied to family vacations as well? Sounds like Tom. Tom's running challenges. Yeah, it could be. It could be applied to anything. Uh, Yeah, the fact is that that you know our lives are made up of projects. We may not be project managers in in title, but we're project managers by habit. And planning a vacation is one of those projects. You know, what if you're overseas and you can't get back for some reason? Are you going to be able to work from over there? Do you have what you need to be able to work from over there, wherever over there is? I, we talked about 9-11. 9-11, I was in Sweden, and I couldn't get back for a week. But I was able to maintain communication because mm-hmm. I had the equipment to be able to do that. And this is way before Wi-Fi, yeah. right? Way before Wi-Fi. It was all dial-up. But I was able to upload, download information. I was, be able, I was able to communicate with my family who, was, who were still in New York. Um, and, you know, we were able to, to do that because, oh, there was a plan. Linking that, that situation to something else we talked about was, you know, the, the security to get back to the United States a week later, mm-hmm. the security line was four hours long. We've gotten a lot better at that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I do. Uh, it, the the wait times now. There's mobile passport. There's like a thousand different yeah, ways. There's clear. Out of yeah, yeah. There's pre-check. There's clear. Right. You know, you get better at this stuff, and we'll get better at it too, for mm-hmm. for health and safety. Yeah. Okay. So as I mentioned to you pre-show, the name of the show is the Let's Go Show: Learning Excellence, True Speed, Goodness, Ownership. So. You know, we've got some themed questions that we like to ask people, but specifically on learning, you and I have talked a little bit about Europe. You and I like uh, we share that we're both history geeks, um, and you were you were telling me about some of the work you were doing on um, comparing what we're going through now to 1918 and some of the overlap with sports. So I don't know if you decided to ultimately write something on that, but. Um, tell me a little bit about the the comparison of the different pandemics and some of the themes you were saying. Sure, uh, and yes, I am writing, uh, and it's it's hope, hoping to be another book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, 1918 and 1919 were really instructive because it was a global pandemic that took 675,000 American lives. So in terms of its impact on society, it was as great, if not a little bit greater than it, than it is today, mm-hmm. given the, even given the, the advances in science, uh, you know, that, that we're, we're just getting smacked right now uh, in a way that is really very personal and very, very difficult. Uh, but what was really interesting is, is people have been asking me, when do sports come back? When does the world come back? to what it was. Mm-hmm. Will, will normal be similar to what normal used to be? And, the, and my answer to that is, yes, we're going to gather again in large groups. There's no question in my mind. Uh, the vaccine, which, uh, which is you know, about to hit the market or going to hit the market you know, early this, this coming year, uh, is really, really hopeful because at, in 1919, after 675,000 Americans perished, in 1920, Major League Baseball set new attendance records. 
and the and the 1920s was actually of course the roaring 20s was actually also the golden age of sports hmm. uh boxing matches horse racing major league baseball all experience incredible growth uh economically and people gathered again after being kept apart just like we're being kept apart today so is there hope for that there's not only hope there's historical precedent we will get past this and we will gather again yeah well that's great to hear because you don't a lot a lot of times people um you know I don't, I don't know if it's a symptom of the internet but we seem to have short-term memories where i know they're saying this this is real it, unprecedented in some ways no doubt but uh we do have things that we can look back to 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 kind of guide our our predictions on what will happen so i look forward to get back getting back to the games um so from an excellence perspective i mean we have to ask how do you become the guy to run the super bowl you know tom and i were joking about this before we're like we think the super bowl is pretty good in terms of the the events that one runs i think that's that's top of the mountain uh, if you will. So how, how do you become that guy? I, I, my example of getting to that point is the worst possible example I can, I can give, which is being in the right place at the right time. Um, I didn't expect to be an event manager, organizer, producer, but I became that. And I became that because I was open to other opportunities. I actually studied biology in school. That was that was my major, and yeah. I have a very scientific. Start with biology to run the Super Bowl. That's, yeah, a, well, that's a unique path. I well, I don't know if that's the path one <laughs> would take today, yep. because there was no path yeah. back in in those days. So, you know, I I was always open to and 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 uh, very uh, excited to be learning about the things that I wanted to learn about, and I I'm still a science geek and i read national geographic cover to cover every month i really look forward to it and i still love what i studied uh which goes back to your learning point uh, but i also started to love the entertainment business and the sports business and i i just never wanted to be second best at anything it's just my competitive streak where i i could not possibly compete on the gridiron or on the diamond I love playing sports, but I'm not a, a natural born athlete, but I, I, I'll, I'll try to channel that into being a mental athlete and, and try to be the best at whatever I'm doing. I, it's just a, a hunger in me to do that. How many people, you know, when you're, when you run something like that, how big is the organization? There were 28 people who were in the event department who dealt with that every day, you know, year round. Uh, when you get to Super Bowl, 14,000 people have credentials to work game day. You're responsible for all of them. And when does the planning for the Super Bowl start? Usually about three years uh, and sometimes four years before. So you're actually planning three or four Super Bowls at once and you're trying to land that plane, you know, one at a time. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, an enormous amount of detail. There's an enormous amount of preparation. Um, and, and it does, it does take that long to be able to put all those things together. That's really similar. I mean, that is time commercial real estate timeframes. When you think about development of properties and things, it's a yeah. three to five. And, and you're, and, and none of those things are linear. You don't start one and end one and then start the next one. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with a lot of planes in the air all at the same time. And you're the air traffic controller trying to land them safely. 
Right. What's the what's the day of experience? You know, what what did the day of Frank look like? Day of the Super Bowl. I I spent the early morning going to every game day event venue. So you know, tailgate party and parking lots and and uh, you know, staff check in locations and uh, hospitality locations and of course the stadium. So I I tried to get to every venue that was operating on game day just to make sure everything was. Uh, you know, buttoned up and and that we were ready to go. Uh, by about ten o'clock in the morning, I was up at NFL Control, which is a booth uh, that's constructed uh, up high in the stadium where we uh, where we control all of game day's operations from. And uh, and then I get on the headset and I'm there, you know, till about an hour and a half, two hours after the game. So uh, it's a very very long day that that feels like about 10 minutes long. It goes yeah. very, very fast. Um, and the, the number of, of issues that you're trying to wrestle to the ground are, uh, are enormous. But what we did along the way, which was really important, was we decentralized decision-making. So a lot more things could be decided on the ground. When mm -hmm. I got there, everything uh, flew, uh, flew up to NFL control to be uh, handled or decided. Uh, coordinated. In some cases, we decentralized that, and put a lot more decision making on the ground, so that so that we could deal with the things that were the most important uh, and and the the ones that were the most impactful and needed policy decisions. Yeah, well, that's a that actually answers the speed question. That's a good one. Um, so one on truth, one of the things that we like to ask is professional pet peeves. Before we get to that, though, Tom did dig up. A clip of Boomer aside, aside and saying you had an easy, comfy office job, and he had yeah. the <laughs> Boomer, Boomer, saying, How did you feel about that? Boomer knows better than that. Uh, it's <laughs> not a. It, it, it might have been an office job on, I would say, a hundred out of three hundred and sixty-five days a year. Other than that, I'm on planes in stadiums and airports and hotels and production meetings. Because remember, we weren't just dealing with four Super Bowls at, at the same time. We were planning yeah. the draft. We were planning the games in London. We were planning owners meetings. We were planning, you know, award shows. We were planning an, an enormous number of, uh, of, of programs and, and events uh, all year long. So Boomer, who's actually a very good friend, knows better. <laughs> he's just, he's just a funny guy. Yep. Yep. So what are your professional pet peeves? You know, it, it actually relates to the to the subject matter, which is truth. You lie to me, you're dead forever. <laughs> you know, if I can't trust you to, to give me, uh, you know, a, an authentic, genuine, real answer, mm -hmm. uh, I discount anything you say after that. So, yep. you know, that that lasts forever. You know, lie to me and you're, you're toast. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, all right, Frank. Well, I think we'll we'll pause there. We'll let you off the hot seat. But thank you so much for doing this, and it's uh, great to connect. We got to have you on a couple more times, and uh, I think we could spend hours, days going into uh, the nuances of experience design and properties. So oh, appreciate it's been you. Been my pleasure, Chase. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.